Welcome to 29th Floor Sunday School. This is a podcast intended to supplement your weekly study of the Come Follow Me curriculum published by the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. I'm host Ben James, and every week I lead you through the lessons in a way that is intended to help you better understand the scriptures, make you think about important questions, and strengthen your faith in Jesus Christ. You can also find the video version of these lessons on my YouTube channel, titled 29th Floor Sunday School. If you find these lessons useful, please consider becoming a subscriber. Enjoy the lesson. Hello, welcome to 29th Floor Sunday School. Glad you can join me today as we study the Come Follow Me lesson for August 17th through 23rd. And today we will be discussing Helaman chapters 1 through 6. As you can see, I remain in the U.S., still no firm travel plans. I canceled mine about a week ago, Uh, so just enjoying time here with my family in the States as hopefully the world is starting to figure things out in terms of coronavirus and eventually we'll come back to some semblance of normalhood or or some new normalness. Uh, But I, I, I myself did kind of have a little bit interesting week. If you notice my face is a little bit puffy, that's because I had some gum surgery. That was not fun, and my face is still a little bit swollen. So recovering from that, but uh, feeling better and happy to come back into my area of safety as I record these lessons and talk about uh, this book, of, this uh, scripture, this Book of Mormon that, that I love so much. Well, uh, last week we wrapped up the war chapters, at least those that are in Alma. Uh, Though, as you'll see from today's lesson, we are certainly not by any means done with war in the Book of Mormon. In fact, we got a lot in today's lesson, and war is going to be a major theme throughout the rest of the Book of Mormon. Um, And, you know, there's, I think, several reasons for that. One you know, this is a record of the Nephites and the Lamanites, and they engaged in a lot of wars. Uh, something that I think, you know, I think I mentioned this before, but, you know, we in our modern society take for granted. I've, you know, my life has never, ever been threatened by a war, and I don't expect it to. Obviously, things can change, and you never know what's going to happen, but, you know, we live in very peaceful times, even though there are wars going on. Uh, those have uh, those wars have been you know, professionalized, and it's usually uh, those that sign up for armed forces and, and participation in the military. Obviously, who I admire and uh, respect, and am grateful for their service. But as one who uh, has not chosen that path in life, really, war has never been something that's directly impacted me. Um, so, as I read about these wars, it's it's sometimes it's hard for me in my sense of uh, security that I've become so accustomed to that I've taken for granted to, to, to really appreciate uh, how important these wars were for these people. And of course, we are getting this record coming from Mormon, who himself was a great general. So war was obviously something uh, on the top of his mind, uh, something that he cared a lot about. And of course, it was because of a war that his people were, were literally destroyed. And so war was something that was important to him. So as he's recording this, it's, it's not a surprise that uh, war is something that, uh, that, that is frequently mentioned by him. Uh, now, but, but again, that said, 
that, so that's one of the reasons why a war plays a major theme throughout the Book of Mormon, because it was important to these people, it was a big part of what they did, and it was important to, to Mormon, our, our editor as well. But I think more importantly is there's also very important spiritual lessons that we take away uh, from studying these war chapters, and that's because we ourselves are engaged in a war, uh, a war against sin, a war against uh, Satan, a war against wickedness. And it's appropriate for us to take that seriously because war is a serious thing. I think if we get too casual uh, in our, I guess we'll call it our relationship with Satan, our relationship with wickedness, if we, in other words, if we start to let it in and stop and fail to realize uh, how potentially dangerous it is, that puts us in a very dangerous situation. So the Book of Mormon, among many things, uh, calls us to reflect upon how uh, potentially dangerous our situation actually is. Uh, and we fail to take that, to the extent we fail to take that seriously, uh, we remain in great danger uh, ourselves. And so certainly one of the great messages of the Book of Mormon is this sense that we are engaged in a battle uh, against sin, against wickedness. It is a war. Uh, tactics are involved. Casualties will result. And we need to be on our guard if we are going to survive. We need to know who our captains are, who our leaders are. We need to know the tactics of the adversary. Uh, we need to learn everything we can about this conflict. Uh, clearly, you know, as you go about your day-to-day -day life as, and war is far from you, uh, the potential danger that you might be in is not something that you think about. But I would imagine when you live in a war society, um, the threat is something that is always on your mind. Uh, certainly, we've a lot of us have experienced this with the coronavirus, who are in some ways in a war against this, uh, against this, uh, against this virus, and. Uh, for many people, this is something that they're always, always thinking about. My, my wife is, is one of them. I'm one that tends to get a little bit lackadaisical uh, in my uh, consideration and my concern. I'm, I'm the one that uh, will start walking into the store and then I'll only, you know, once I get there, I'll realize, oh no, I forgot to put on my mask. Or when I get home, I, or when I leave the store, I won't always, you know, wash my hands or we'll, for, we'll forget about that. My wife is much more, uh, much more conscious about these things. And I think war is, is similar. It seems to me that when you're involved in an actual war, that's something that would not always be in the back of your mind, but something in the forefront of your mind. And, and that's how we should be uh, as we think about uh, the situation that we're in and trying to confront Satan. It should be something that is always on the forefront of our minds. We should always have our guard up, always be aware of where uh, temptations might, might take us. Uh, and in some ways, yes, that's exhausting. In some ways, it can be annoying as well. Um, but that's the main reason that we're here, is to confront wickedness and to overcome wickedness and become the best that we can become. So that warring mentality, uh, I think, is something that uh, is, is important and, and one of the reasons why the Book of Mormon spends so much time discussing the wars that take place between the Nephites and the Lamanites. Okay, so, so let's uh, dive into today's text. We got six chapters to cover. Um, there's a lot of, uh, 
I, I guess, more historical uh, narrative in these lessons today. Uh, then, then, you know, there's not a lot of, there's some, but not a lot of, you know, pure doctrinal teaching. And so today we'll uh, largely be going through what's happening in these six different chapters. Uh, each one of them is somewhat compelling, different story in some ways, or a different chapter in this long narrative of wars and political strife. It's, it's, it's quite fascinating. Um, and then, of course, we'll pick up on whatever uh, spiritual nuggets that we can. So starting in chapter 1, uh, we see that Pahoran, uh, the chief judge, uh, passes away, and it is time to appoint his successor. Now apparently the selection of chief judges is in some ways, it, it's more than just a democracy. Um, because we see that the, those that are put up as possible successors to Pahorans are three of his many sons. Uh, they are Pahoran, Panchi and uh, Pecumeni. And uh, so these three uh, sons, they are all vying for uh, the chief judge seat. They put it up to an election. Uh, the people choose uh, Pahoran and, uh, and his brother uh, Panchi uh, is angry about that. And those that decide that they are going to rebel against this decision and so Panchi is uh, arrested, and the people that support him go on to murder uh, Pahoran. So uh, Panchi, basically, as he's arrested by his brother and thrown in jail, uh, his brother's people have him killed. And so uh, as a result of that, uh, the other brother, uh, Pakumeni, uh, takes the, th uh, take the throne, I guess you could call it, uh, takes the seat of uh, chief judge, and uh, the people that uh, support Panchi, again, are, are very uh, upset about this, and uh, they begin to enter into covenants, especially after Pahoran uh, has been killed, about protecting themselves, about committing uh, horrible acts, and then uh, agreeing that they will all uh, not uh, disclose the uh, individuals that committed these acts. And we can read that about that in chapter uh, 1 of Helaman, verse 11. And he went unto those that sent him, and they all entered into a covenant, yea, swearing by their everlasting maker, that they would tell no man that Kishkumen had murdered Pahoran. And so here we see people entering into covenants, which is something that we see throughout the Book of Mormon. But of course, this is not a covenant with God. And it is not the, the promise that we make with God that we will serve him and serve others. Um, but it is a covenant with others that we will not disclose uh, the horrible things that we are aware that those other people have done. So, as in many things, this is Satan's uh, counterfeit version of covenants. Satan is a master of uh, creating counterfeits. Anything that is good and sacred and holy, Satan will try to create counterfeits for that. And through those counterfeits, he will uh, lead people astray. He will get them distracted. He will cause them to uh, do the opposite of what the original thing that Satan is counterfeiting uh, is intended for. And uh, unfortunately, entering into covenants is something that is not uh, accepted from this pattern. 
So whereas you and I enter into sacred covenants when we are baptized or when we go to the temple uh, to receive uh, and make covenants there, uh, these people did a similar thing, except instead of covenanting that they would love God and serve their fellow men and keep the commandments, rather they covenanted that they would serve each other in uh, destroying other people and bringing about uh, destruction and sorrow uh, within society. Uh, so again, this is clearly a counterfeit uh, to the beautiful covenants that we enter into, but something that Satan is able to do. And apparently there's even uh, signs and secret words involved, uh, very similar to uh, the covenanting process that we go through as we uh, receive our sacred covenants within the temple. Again, Satan uses the exact same uh, the, the exact same things uh, that are sacred and twists them for his evil works. And we need to be aware that this causes two things. One, obviously, uh, by these wicked men entering into covenants to protect each other, the result is that uh, they are able to more effectively go about committing their wickedness without getting caught. So, you know, one effect is it, it brings about mischief and mayhem and chaos to society. Uh, but the other, and, and I think this is probably far more reaching because those, you know, that are part of the Gadiant and robber types that are, you know, secretly entering into wicked covenants, I think are, are generally few and far between. At least I hope that's the case. Uh, but the other danger is that it causes uh, confusion. And so if you see, on one hand, you see good covenants, and then on the other hand, you see bad covenants, it's not unreasonable to draw the conclusion that ugh, covenants are just neither here nor there, they're not important. There's good and there's bad, and I'm just going to be neutral when it comes to covenants. Which, of course, is the wrong conclusion, because we know that it is essential for us to enter into sacred covenants uh, with Christ and, with, uh, and, and through those covenants that we return to our Heavenly Father. But by Satan creating counterfeit covenants, not only does it allow him to carry out his mischievous plans, uh, but it also destroys, in some people's minds, the sacredness of actual uh, legitimate covenants. Uh, one uh, area in which Satan does this, and which my wife has helped me become aware, is that, the, uh, that, that she's identified, having grown up in mainland China, and being, you know, when she was young, fully uh, indoctrinated, and in, in the greatness of, of the Chinese Communist Party is that uh, the, the way the party is structured, the CCP, the Chinese Communist Party, is structured is, is not dissimilar from the way that the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints is structured. And so sometimes for my wife, it's difficult to, uh, to, to, to not recognize the similarities and ask questions because she knows of the uh, corruptness and uh, the wickedness that is brought about uh, through the Chinese Communist Party. And you know, sometimes it's, it's, it's not easy to say, well, if, if these guys are structured this way, and the church is structured this way, and I know I can't trust the Communist Party, and part of their ability to do the things that they do within China is based on their structure, how can I trust any organization that's structured in the same way, even, even the church? And so just by structuring things and by, and by using counterfeits uh, that, that Satan does, he's able to raise questions, he's able to cause doubts, and he's able to uh, make it difficult for those that are sincerely seeking truth and, and trying to 
be at peace with the Lord. By, by using these counterfeits, Satan throws, uh, throw, throw, often makes it challenging for us to have peace. And so we see that with, sacred, with uh, secret combinations and these covenants that these wicked men are entering into. And uh, given the, uh, uh, the, the gravity of these covenants and, and given uh, that, that they enter into each other, it's, it's in some ways not surprising then that uh, the challenges that the Nephites face going forward have to do with these fake counterfeit covenants uh, and, and eventually prove to be uh, the downfall of Nephite society, as uh, Mormon is soon to point out here. So these wicked men enter into covenants, they kill the chief, the chief judge, and then it just so happens that while all of this uh, internal challenges are going on, the Lamanites decide, hey, let's go and attack the Nephites. And they have a general who is, uh, who is very bold, and his name is Coriantumr, and he leads the Lamanite armies. They're not just going to attack the border towns, they're going to penetrate all the way into the land of Zarahemla and attack the, the capital city, basically, of the Nephite nation. And uh, they do so. And uh, the chief judge, uh, Pekumani, is killed in the process as, as he's fighting against Coriantumr. And, uh, and, and so we've had two of these three uh, chief judges murdered. Uh, the other one is uh, in, in jail, having uh, committed uh, rebellion. And the Lamanites are able to take advantage of this. And uh, they gain the main, uh, they gain the capital city. Now, fortunately, they continued to attack. And uh, Moranaiha, uh, being the great general that he is, uh, he's able to take advantage of their overzealousness. And so uh, he's able to get his armies prepared throughout around the borders because that's where they assumed they were going to attack. But instead, they went past the borders into the city. And then as Moranaiha's uh, armies were prepared, um, you know, as they woke up and realized what was going on, they had, uh, uh, they had Coriantumr's uh, armies were trapped. And so they were able to defeat the Lamanites and Coriantumr himself was killed. Uh, then at the end of chapter one, it says Moranaiha, like his father not wanting to shed blood, uh, lets those who uh, promised that they would not uh, continue to commit sins, he lets them depart in peace. Uh, so very... Uh, generous and charitable of him, again, just like his father, uh, Moroni. And so we, right away in this chapter one, we get, we get this battle, uh, and we're introduced to secret combinations, and we get chief judges being murdered. And it's just, you get this feeling that there's just this sense of chaos going on within uh, Nephite nation. And that theme continues uh, for the next several dozen years, all the way up to uh, the coming of Christ. So now we go to chapter 2. Um, Helaman, who is the son of Helaman, and this Helaman is also Alma's grandson then, uh, he becomes the chief judge, and uh, the secret combinations rise up again, uh, but this time they are led by Gadianton. Um, so he's, take over, he's taken over Kishkumen, and his, uh, remember Kishkumen is the one that uh, killed Pahoran, um, and so he's taken over this little band of uh, robbers that go around uh, killing people and committing other crimes and then covenanting amongst themselves that they will not reveal uh, the nature of their crimes or the identity of those who commit the crimes. Um, and thus we get these secret combination. 
And this Kishkamen, uh, who, who is being led by uh, Gadianton, who's taken over things, uh, Kishkamen goes up and uh, it's his intention to murder Helaman. Now, fortunately, one of Helaman's uh, spies or someone who serves Helaman uh, somehow had found out he had learned the ways of these uh, secret combinations. He had learned their signs and their symbols. And as Kishkumen was going forward to murder Helaman, this servant uh, was able to give the signs and the symbols. And as a result, he uh, was able to win the trust of Kishkumen. And before Kishkumen was able to kill Helaman, this servant then ends up killing uh, Kishkumen. And so... Uh, the Gadianton robbers then, when they realize that Kishkumen uh, has been compromised, or their plans have been compromised, that Kishkumen is no more, uh, they realize it's in their best interest to flee into the wilderness. So right away in chapter 1 and chapter 2, we get two instances of bad people doing bad things, trying to disrupt uh, the peace that everyone else is trying to enjoy. And at the end of uh, chapter 2, uh, Mormon makes this statement in chapter in verse 13. He says, And behold, in the end of this book ye shall see that this Gideonton did prove the overthrow, yea, almost the entire destruction of the people of Nephi. Now, something that we need to uh, pay attention to. Now, these secret combinations, they may seem isolated. At this point, they seem somewhat weak. Uh, they tried to kill the chief, chief judge, but they were not afraid to. And as a result, they fled into the wilderness. So it seems like something we might not have to worry about going forward. But in the end, it's these secret combinations that prove to be the downfall of Nephite society. The Gadianton robbers and uh, their secret ways. It is these secret ways that, uh, the, these secret ways that, were, that proved to be the downfall of the Jaredites. That as Alma was passing the plates to his son Helaman, he said, you know, don't record this stuff. There's some bad things in here we don't want people to know about. And it was these secret combinations is what he's talking about here. So it was the downfall of the Jaredites. It proves to be the downfall of the Nephites. So those of us living in uh, this same land in the Americas need to be aware, need to be conscious, uh, need to be on our guard against these secret combinations. But I think more importantly, from a national level, I think even within ourselves, we need to bear, be aware that uh, these secret combinations, which are again counterfeits to Satan's covenants, we need to be aware that they too could prove to be our individual downfall if we do not take them seriously, if we do not kick them out, if we, as we see as the Nephites later do, if we embrace them and give room for them. Uh, they will prove to be our individual downfall, leading us astray from where we want to go. So we move to chapter 3 then. Uh, so, and, and then these, there's dissensions within Nephite society. Uh, clearly we have uh, the secret combinations are a big source of dissension. We, we learned that we're, that we're not given details that there were other dissensions within the society. And as a result, there's a number of people that uh, decide to leave. Um, and it says that they head up to the land northward uh, to inherit the land. So they're like, you know what, this society, it's not working out so great. We're just going to go kind of do our own thing. Um, and, and so they go to a place, but unfortunately there's not a lot of timber here. For some reason, Mormons spend several verses talking about there's not a lot of timber, and so they decide to build cement houses. Um, and I only mention this because this is one area where 
I, I think we have, you know, again, not proof that the Book of Mormon is authentic and claims to be what it says it is, uh, but certainly a good evidence. One, one thing that you can, uh, you know, in, in a moment of doubt, you can say, you know, how, you know, how is it possible that Joseph Smith would have gotten this right? Because at his time, there was no one, uh, particularly in upstate New York, that believed that uh, the ancient inhabitants of America were, were capable of, of using cement. Um, and so at the time that he put cement in there, that was kind of viewed as something that was, uh, that was laughable. Um, something he clearly gotten wrong and, uh, you know, had he known anything about uh, the societies that lived at that time, he, he would not have mentioned uh, making buildings of cement. Well, as uh, later, uh, as, as archaeology has, has run its course, it's been discovered that, well, actually there was uh, cement used by people living in that time. So how was uh, Joseph Smith able to go against conventional wisdom at his time to guess something right that would, uh, that, that would later be proven right uh, by, by people at a much later time? Um, obviously, that would be something that would be very difficult to do and very unlikely that he would have done that. Uh, and so, again, it's not proof that the Book of Mormon is true, but uh, to my mind, it's just one more little, uh, you know, one more weight on the scale in favor of, you know, hey, there's a good chance that this book is actually uh, what it claims to be. Um, okay, and so the Nephites, uh, they, even though there's dissension and people leaving, um, they've, uh, they, they got Helaman in charge as the chief judge. Uh, the Lamanites uh, had been defeated two chapters ago and they haven't come and attacked. And so things are actually going pretty well at the time. Um, so they're enjoying peace, and as a result of that peace, the church is in a position where it is able to, to prosper, and uh, including adding many new members. Uh, and it gives Mormon a chance to uh, editorialize and add some beautiful spiritual insights. So with that, let's read uh, chapter 3, verses 28 through 30, where it says, Yea, thus we see that the gate of heaven is open unto all, even to those who will believe on the name of Jesus Christ, who is the Son of God. Yea, we see that whosoever will may lay hold upon the word of God, which is quick and powerful, which shall divide asunder all the cunning and the snares and the wiles of the devil, and lead the man of Christ in a straight and narrow course across that everlasting gulf of misery, which is prepared to engulf the wicked." and land their souls, yea, their immortal souls, at the right hand of God in the kingdom of heaven, to sit down with Abraham and Isaac and with Jacob, and with all our holy fathers, to go no more out. I love the things that are, that are taught in, this verse, in these verses. They're so simple, straightforward, yet so powerful. Uh, you know, the gate of heaven is open unto all, unto everyone. Uh, whoever you are, you're welcome to accept Jesus Christ to uh, benefit from his atonement if you will simply uh, believe on the name of Jesus Christ who is the Son of God. And then in verse 29, it's, it's, it's very direct and it is the Word of God that is quick and powerful, divides asunder uh, all the cunning and the snares and the wiles of the devil that leads us in a straight and narrow course across the everlasting, everlasting gulf of misery and lands us back in the presence of God. It is the word of God 
that is so important and that we must hold on to uh, in times of confusion, in times of issues where we don't know what to do, uh, where we are uncertain how to move forward. It is the word of God that we have to hold on to uh, that will lead us back to Christ. So uh, back to Christ who leads us back to our Heavenly Father. So on the one hand, we have the name of Christ, and then we have the Word of God. These two, uh, in some ways, abstract ideas, yet both uh, essential and critical, important ideas. And it's these two things that work together, uh, all of which you know, emanate from Jesus Christ uh, that bring us back to the presence of God. The important thing is it's not something that we do by ourselves. It is not our own name that... Uh, qualifies us to return to the presence of our Heavenly Father. And it is not our own words. It is not our own ideas. It is not our own philosophies. Or it is not our own understanding of what truth is that leads us back to God. We need to rely on the name of Christ. And we need to rely on the word of Christ if we are going to be saved. Uh, And then verse 35 is also instructive. Nevertheless, they did fast and pray oft and did wax stronger and stronger in their humility and firmer and firmer in the faith of Christ unto the filling their souls with joy and consolation, yea, even to the purifying and the sanctification of their hearts, which sanctification cometh because of their yielding their hearts unto God. So I love this as it talks about the importance of humility in that process of coming unto God. And humility here, it defines as uh, yielding our hearts to God. When we are humble, we are willing to give our hearts to God. We are willing to put on our altar the sacrifice that is what God truly cares about, which is our hearts, which is our will. We're willing to put our uh, desires, our understandings to a side, and say, Lord, this is what I want, this is what makes sense to me, but I'm willing to follow you. I'm willing to be humble. I'm willing to recognize that I don't understand everything. I'm willing to recognize that there are things out there that might not make sense to me right now, but that doesn't mean that they are not true. That does not mean that they are not right. That does not mean that that is not what you want me to do. And I'm willing to put my own desires aside in order to follow you. And that's what these good saints did. And as a result, they received the sanctification that was necessary to prepare them to uh, return to the presence of God. And so at the end of uh, chapter 3, Nephi, the son of Helaman. So now this is Alma's great-grandson. We've gone from Alma, Helaman, Helaman, and then now he has two sons, Nephi and Lehi. Um, So Alma's great-grandson And this Nephi uh, takes over uh, being the chief judge. Helaman, it seems, uh, had a a relatively short reign after all the murders uh, that went on. Uh, Kishkaman obviously wanted it to be shorter. Fortunately, he didn't get that. uh, He he didn't win uh, that effort. But uh, gratefully, as a result, uh, Helaman did have a, uh, a time as chief judge. But apparently wasn't very long, and soon his son Nephi uh, now has taken over uh, the chief judge seat. And of course, Nephi uh, turns out to be a very, very righteous man, um, one of the greatest prophets in the Book of Mormon, uh, even though he doesn't, he receives a decent amount of ink, but not as much as, uh, you know, the other Nephi, for example. 
Um, but he, he now is the chief judge and will lead the people in righteousness. But, uh, just not, but despite that, uh, chapter 4 begins with, uh, we have dissensions within the church and among the people. So we'll see that these dissensions, uh, you know, the fi- infighting, uh, you know, backstabbing, going against each other's people, having different ideas and not being willing to compromise or to uh, live and let live. Uh, it's these dissensions that cause so much problems. Obviously, within the church, it causes problems and causes people to leave the church. And then within Nephite society as a whole, uh, there's great dissensions as well. And these dissenters actually from Nephite society decide that they're going to go up to the Lamanites and try to stir the Lamanites up into uh, anger against the Nephites, uh, eventually leading into war. They try multiple times. Their first attempts are not successful, but eventually they are successful in convincing the Lamanites that they should go uh, and attack the Nephites. So uh, the Lamanites do uh, eventually attack the Nephites, having been stirred up by the dissenting Nephites. Uh, And in the end, they're very successful. They end up taking most of the Nephite lands. Um, And so there's people within the Nephites' uh, lands that are now controlled by the Lamanites. And then there's also been many, many people that have been murdered uh, during that process as well. And so we get uh, a little bit of editorializing by Mormon in verses 11 and 12. Now this great loss of the Nephites and the great slaughter which was among them would not have happened had it not been for their wickedness and their abomination which was among them. Yea, and it was among those also who professed to belong to the church of God. And it was because of the pride of their hearts, because of their exceeding riches. Yea, it was because of their oppression to the poor, withholding their food from the hungry, withholding their clothing from the naked, and smiting their humble brethren upon the cheek, making a mock of that which was sacred, denying the spirit of prophecy and of revelation, murdering, plundering, lying, stealing, committing adultery, rising up in great contentions, and deserting away, Uh, and deserting away into the land of Nephi among the Lamanites. So Mormon goes through this big laundry list here of the different sins that the Nephites are guilty of. Uh, But it's interesting, those ones that he starts with. Uh, Of all the problems, you know, on this list, eventually he gets into, you know, murdering, uh, lying, committing adultery, you know, some of the bigger problems. But those aren't the ones he necessarily starts with. Even though those are big problems, those are seriously, you know, bad sins. It's some of the smaller ones that he he recognizes as being uh, those that build up over time and eventually result in uh, the disaster and the fall of the Nephites. In this case, their their immediate uh, vulnerability to the Lamanites. And those are the pride of their hearts, because, and it's because of their exceeding riches and the oppression of the poor, uh, withholding of their clothing and smiting uh, humble brethren on the cheek. It, it's their pride that is causing so much problems. It's their pride. It's their love of wealth. It's their love of riches. It's their refusing to take care of each other and to be responsible for each other. It's because uh, they are so focused on money Uh, that they are not in a position to protect themselves. Where had they been, instead of so focused on money, instead had they been focused on keeping the commandments of God, they would be in a better position when 
the Lamanite armies attacked and they would not have lost uh, so much of their land. Now this notion is obviously counterintuitive uh, to, 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 to a lot of thinking. You know, it, it would seem like, yeah, it would make sense to focus on uh, things because you can use money and you can use wealth to build your security and protect you from your adversaries. Uh, but the true protection comes not from having a lot of things. The true protection comes from keeping the commandments of God. Because as we keep the commandments of God, we are in tune with his spirit. And God, among many other things, desires strongly to protect us and to keep us happy. Now, that doesn't mean there won't be challenges in our lives, obviously. It doesn't mean that sometimes we might not be challenged. We might not even be attacked by our adversaries. But as we keep the commandments, we'll be able to maintain that uh, eternal perspective. And it's with that perspective uh, that God is able to give us the inspiration we need, give us the, the peace that we need, uh, so that no matter what happens to us, we will remain at peace and we will be safe and protected. The Nephites, as they focused on their things rather than focusing on God, uh, were uh, were made vulnerable to, att to attacks from outside forces. And that's clearly a great lesson for us spiritually uh, as well. As we remain focused on uh, the things of God, as we are constantly thinking about God, as we are constantly remembering that we are engaged in this war against wickedness, and uh, there's temptations that will always be present, and it is our job to look out for them uh, and to make sure that they do not take hold within us. As we seek to protect ourselves, the Lord will inspire us and give us the spiritual protection we need. But as we focus on things, as we are distracted, as our attention, as our attention is diverted, we're not able to uh, remain protected because our focus is not on our spiritual well-being. Our focus is not on this, this war that we're involved in, but rather our focus is on uh, the things of this world rather than the things of God, and that makes us vulnerable. Verse 15 of chapter 4. And it came to pass that they did repent, and inasmuch as they did repent, they did begin to prosper. So uh, the people, they recognized their mistakes, and they tried to do better. And as a result, they were able to get some of the lost land back. And instead of uh, and, but eventually they kind of reached a plateau where they weren't able to get more back. And so they focused on maintenance. They focused on uh, building up defenses so that next time the Nephites came, these, uh, the cities that they had worked so hard to get back were protected. And so we can see this pride cycle just picking up in speed. They have some peace, uh, some prosperity because of their, wicked, because of their uh, willingness to repent. Uh, and as a result, they get prosperity, and prosperity leads them to focus on material things. When they focus on material things, they're distracted from the things of God, and they become vulnerable. Obviously, huge ramifications for each of us. We cannot afford to be so focused on, on, on worldly things. And, you know, very, very difficult challenge. Uh, one I admittedly uh, fail in myself uh, quite frequently. You know, I'd like to live a comfortable life. Uh, I'm trying to build a comfortable life for my family. Uh, as a result of that, that requires me, you know, working long hours. And as a result of working long hours, I 
like to indulge sometimes in order to reward myself, either with new fancy things or doing uh, things that uh, require a lot of money. And as a result, I end up like doing those things. And so I continue to work hard. And sometimes as, you, as you're spending lots of time uh, working hard and rewarding yourself, you, you get distracted and you don't leave time for the things of God. And that's such a challenge, but one that we all have to confront, just like the Nephites. And, you know, that's why these records are here to remind us that uh, the, the challenges that the Nephites faced, um, even though they might, you know, we, we don't threaten attack from our neighbors, uh, at least hopefully we don't, uh, but we do threaten uh, temptation and we're threatened with uh, attacks by the adversaries. He attempts to distract us from uh, where our attention should be. And the lesson that the layman, that the Nephites ultimately draw from this, that, you know, rather than, you know, attacking back the Lamanites to a certain degree, it's easier to maintain. And that's an important spiritual lesson for us as well. Let us maintain the, the ground that we have gained, those testimonies that we have gained, those uh, instances of faith, those spiritual experiences we've had. We need to maintain our testimony. We need to keep them, uh, keep them safe, keep them protected uh, so that they cannot be uh, attacked by those that would uh, desire that we lose faith, by those that would desire to instill doubt within us uh, and cause us to be distracted by the bright, shiny objects, the things of the world. Uh, we need to, uh, it's much easier to maintain uh, than it is to repent and, and get back something that uh, you previously had uh, but has since been lost. And so with this, we move to chapter 5. Um, Nephi, who again had been appointed by the chief judge, makes the same decision that his great-grandfather made. He's going to give up the chief judge seat and go out uh, preaching the gospel uh, to his people and to the Lamanites as well. Uh, but before he does so, uh, we are, are blessed with some teachings that came uh, from Nephi's father, Helaman, uh, to us uh, that, that have been preserved and Mormon shares them with us. And so uh, we'll read some of those, uh, starting in chapter 5, verse 8. And now, my sons, behold, I have somewhat more to desire of you, which desire is that ye may not do these things that ye may boast, but that ye may do these things to lay up for yourselves a treasure in heaven, yea, which is eternal and which fadeth not away. Yea, that ye may have the precious gift of eternal life, which we have reason to suppose hath been given to our fathers. I love Helaman's admonitions to his sons here that you need to focus on the things of eternity. All the things that you do, you need to make sure that you maintain an eternal perspective, that you remember that you are busy treasuring up in heaven that which is eternal and that fadeth not away. There's such a, in some ways, such a simple idea, right? I mean, we all know that we're going to die. We know that the things in this life are all temporary. And if you believe that the soul is immortal and eternal, it, it, it's ridiculous, really, if you think about it, that you would spend so much time, so much effort while in this mortality focused on this brief mortality. Why not spend the time of this life preparing for and putting away treasure uh, against that future which we know is inevitable, which is going to come. There's no one here that thinks they're going to spend 
the rest of eternity in this world, enjoying your houses and your cars and your and your clothes and all the other uh, wonderful fancy things that we work so hard to earn. We all know that those are temporary. We all know that we we all know that we can't take them with us. But yet that is where so much of our focus is. And Helaman tries to warn his sons uh, against that temptation. Obviously, they're both talented young men, very smart and and very blessed, and they have the potential to do. Uh, you know, to pursue great worldly success. But uh, they're reminded by their father, Helaman, don't put your efforts there. Don't put your focus there. Put your focus on the things of God. And then verse 12. And now, my sons, remember, remember that it is upon the rock of our Redeemer, who is Christ, the Son of God, that ye must build your foundation, that when the devil shall send forth his mighty winds, yea, his shaft and shafts in the whirlwinds, yea, when all this hail and his mighty storm shall beat upon you, it shall have no power over you to drag you down to the gulf of, gulf of misery and endless woe because of the rock upon which ye are built, which is a sure foundation, a foundation whereon if men build, they cannot fall. And I love this verse, an old scripture mastery verse from uh, when I was doing seminary back in high school, uh, but such a powerful message that Christ is the rock upon we upon which which should serve as our foundation. I mean, the wording here is a little bit awkward. He says this upon which you must build your foundation. I I think that it's not we build our foundation upon our rock, but that rock is our foundation. Because a rock is solid. A rock is firm. A rock does not sway in different directions. A rock provides uh, uh, stability that cannot be compared to any other source of foundation. And that is what we want to build our lives upon. So, you know, we've used this analogy many times before. Paul certainly used it to describe the church. Uh, it's many places in the Book of Mormon it's alluded to, but, you know, our lives are like a house. And we need a foundation upon which to build our lives. And, of course, the Savior alluded this too, right? When he gave the, the parable of the, of, of the man building his house upon a, a rock or building his house upon a sandy foundation. And when the floods come, if you're built upon sand, your house will wash away. And the promise of mortality is that those floods will come. You will have challenges. Because that's why we're here. That's part of what it's all about. To learn and to grow. Without those challenges, we do not grow. And so, it is not something that we should try to avoid. uh, But something that we should recognize. And since we recognize that they are part of the human experience. These different challenges. We need to make sure that our rocks, the, rock, the, 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 the houses of our lives are built upon a solid foundation. Uh, I love this verse in uh, Moses chapter 7 verse 53 where it says, And the Lord said, Blessed is he through whose seed the Messiah shall come. For he saith, I am Messiah, the King of Zion, the rock of heaven, which is broad as eternity. Whoso cometh in at the gate and climbeth up me, up by me shall never fall. Wherefore, blessed are they of whom I have spoken, for they shall come forth with songs of everlasting joy. I love that title, The Rock of Heaven. What a beautiful title for the Savior. He is the Rock of Heaven, which is broad as eternity, 
This is a broad, expansive rock, infinite in its expansion, large enough so that everyone can build upon it. And whosoever cometh in at the gate and climbeth up by me shall never fall. We enter at the gate of Christ and we are constantly climbing up. And if we climb up by Christ, which I think could have two meetings, we climb up next to him, hand in hand, his holding ours, ours as we climb up towards God together, as we climb up this uh, eternal path of eternal progression together, does so hand in hand by Christ, with Christ. And then if you climb up by Christ, knowing that he is the path, he is the way that we should go, uh, we can be certain that it will eventually lead us back to uh, our eternal home, to our eternal promised land. Um, and then back to verse 12 in Helaman, uh, you know, this idea that the devil, uh, when he sends forth his mighty winds, you know, they're not just little breezes. These are mighty winds that the devil sends forth, these temptations that are going to come to us. Uh, and, and what is it they do? Um, they'll have, if we're built upon Christ, they'll have no power over you to drag you down to the gulf because of the rock upon which you are built. So we have these temptations, these mighty winds that are going to come, and their job is to try to destabilize us so that we collapse into this gulf. And if we're built upon the rock, we know that that rock will not move and that our house will remain firm. But if we are built upon anything else, when those temptations come, they will not be sufficient to provide us the support that we need. And those temptations will take us down. They will result in disappointment. They will result in sorrow. They will result in doubts. And they will result in sins. All of which will combine to make it impossible for us to get where we want to go on our own. And again, going back to, the, to our earlier verses, it is the word of God and the name of Christ that we have to rely on in order to uh, return back to uh, our Father in heaven. And so it is Christ who serves as our rock, our foundation. It is his name by which we are saved. And it is his words that lead us back to the presence of our heavenly parents. Uh, so after this, um, after we get this kind of brief interlude by Mormon where he uh, dumps in a few teachings by, uh, by Helaman, uh, parents to Nephi and Lehi, after this they go and preach the gospel. Um, they head out and they start to have some success in convincing the Lamanites that live in Nephite lands uh, of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then they head to the land of Nephi, which interestingly is controlled by the Lamanites, and try to teach them there. And they are summarily thrown in prison. And they're in prison many days without food and water. And they're about to take them to execute them. And then all of a sudden, uh, we get divine intervention uh, in the form of they are surrounded by fire um, and that they're protected by this fire. And uh, those that uh, see them protected uh, dare not take further action against them. And uh, as a result, uh, they, they're also they, unable to see clearly. It feels like the walls are going to fall down. And they're in obviously a terrified situation. And they want to know how do we get out of this situation. Well, there was one among them uh, who had been uh, previously a Nephite. And he uh, had remembered enough about the gospel to recognize what 
they had to do in order to get out of this situation. Uh, and his recommendation to them is the recommendation for all of us because, again, we are all in this situation. We are all in dangerous situations, whether we recognize it or not. And that is because of the sins that we commit, because of the mistakes that we make, because we are unable by ourselves to return back to the presence of our heavenly parents. And so his admonition uh, to them is verses 40 through 41. And it came to pass that the Lamanites said unto him, What shall we do that this cloud of darkness may be removed over, from overshadowing us? And Aminadab said unto them, You must repent and cry unto the voice, even until ye shall have faith in Christ, who was taught unto you by Alma and Amulek and Zeezrom. And when ye shall do this, the cloud of darkness shall be removed from overshadowing you. And that's what we have to do. We have to repent and cry unto the voice. Cry unto that inner voice that drives us to become better. We have to repent and give heed to that desire to come unto God, to recognize that there is something greater than us available, and then to go towards that thing until ye shall have faith in Christ. We have to continue to pray to God until we develop that faith in Christ that is sufficient uh, to carry us forward and to move us forward back to the presence of God. And that is what uh, they were admonished that they need to do. And that is the, uh, the lesson for all of us that we all need to do as we move forward in order to have, uh, in order to have this cloud of darkness removed from us. We are all in this cloud of darkness. We all don't see directly where we are going and so we operate by faith. And so we call upon God by faith. And through that action of calling upon him, we develop faith in Jesus Christ and the power to move forward. Interestingly, those that participated in this miracle, they called upon God uh, and they were filled. And uh, once they participated in this miracle, they were converted to God. And then apparently they go out and start teaching the gospel. And because of their teaching, many, many Lamanites are converted. So it's Nephi and Lehi and those that were there to witness this miracle who, again, interestingly, not long before this miracle takes place, is, are determined to murder Nephi and Lehi. But this is so convincing that they, you know, and their hearts are obviously uh, pure enough that they're able to sincerely repent and then they go about teaching the gospel to their fellow Lamanites. And as a result, as we move to chapter 6 now, the Lamanites have become more righteous than the Nephites have. And uh, those within the church uh, on both sides, on both the Nephite and the Lamanite side, believe the same thing and they start to have a lot of interactions with each other. And it brings a lot of joy to both sides. And so, Interestingly, in part because of these wars, the two societies are brought much closer together. They start to have more interactions. And then once the fighting is over, these interactions lead to prosperity as they start to trade uh, amongst each other. Uh, and so because of this, they start to become very wealthy. Uh, and so they enjoy peace for a season. And then, of course, the secret combinations come back. And they kill the new chief judge that took the place of Nephi. Uh, they kill him, his son steps in, and then they also kill uh, his son. And so we only get peace for a short period of time before these 
secret combinations come in and ruin it for everybody. Um, but there are a few verses uh, in this chapter that are worth uh, highlighting as we finish up today's lesson, uh, starting in verse uh, 17. For behold, the Lord had blessed them so long with the riches of the world that they had not been stirred up to anger, to wars, nor to bloodshed. Therefore they began to set their hearts upon their riches. Yea, they began to seek to get gain that they might be lifted up one above another. Therefore they began to commit secret murders and to rob and to plunder that they might get gain. So the question here as we read this verse for each of us is, as we strive to get gain, and we all do so. I think it's not only is it part of human nature, I don't think it's necessarily a bad thing to strive to get gain. Obviously, you have to do it in a righteous manner. Uh, you know, don't break laws, don't take advantage of other people. But I think equally important, probably more important, is what is the purpose that we are doing it for? Well, for some of the Nephites, the purpose became that they might be lifted up one above another. If our purpose in trying to get gain is so that we can become, uh, you know, above the other person, above our neighbors, have more than them, view ourselves as being better than them, yeah, that creates problems. Uh, or if they're doing it um, just for the sake of getting gain so that we can get as much as we possibly can, rather than to live a comfortable life and provide for those that we love, again, that can also become a problem. Um, so... You know, the question is, what is what is our motives as we go to work, as we strive to provide the best life that we can for ourselves and for our families? Is it simply to get gain? Is it simply so that we might have more than our neighbors? Or do we strive to get gain to truly provide a, a comfortable life, sufficient for our needs, and then take the excess to serve God and to serve others? Uh, getting gain and working are... Again, not bad things if you do them for the right motives and if they are pursued in appropriate ways. So these robbers have come back into their society and interestingly were provided commentary that says the Lamanites were uh, very vigilant in getting rid of the robbers. But the Nephites began to embrace them. And this leads the Nephites down a very, very dangerous hole uh, and, and though now the Lamanites are making wise decisions and doing the things that they're supposed to, uh, unfortunately, we can't have both people being righteous at the same time. So we've just kind of switched positions here. Uh, the Nephites have now begun to embrace the secret combinations. They've now begun to embrace their material success, focusing on the things of the world, uh, covenanting amongst themselves to, uh, to do the things of the world, to engage in the political intrigue. Um, and not telling uh, others about the bad things that are going on. This, this era of secrecy uh, around uh, the mistakes and the bad choices that they are making. Whereas the Lamanites recognize that this is bad. And uh, they simply cast out uh, these robbers. And they want nothing to do with them in their society. Uh, and let's finish by reading verses 36 and 37 in chapter, uh, chapter 6. And thus we see that the Lord began to pour out his spirit among the Lamanites because of their easiness and willingness to believe in his words. And it came to pass that the Lamanites did hunt the band of robbers of Gadianton, and they did preach the word of God among the more wicked part of them, insomuch that this band of robbers was utterly destroyed from among the Lamanites. So we have to pattern our lives after what the Lamanites are doing here. 
recognizing that within each of us, in our own lives, there are these temptations. We have Gadianton robbers within us. The question is, do we nurture them and accept them and embrace them as the Nephites did? Or do we do like the Lamanites? Do we take these parts of us that aren't doing what we know they should be done? Do we take our sins and our weaknesses, these knowing that uh, we each have them and we each have areas we need to improve, do we nurture them or do we preach the word of God at them and utterly destroy them from within ourselves? Obviously, that is the approach that we should be taking to sin, recognizing that we are involved in a war and wars are serious. And so we need to take these things seriously. We need to commit ourselves that we will covenant not with other people, but with God, and that we will take our covenants seriously, recognizing that it is only by covenanting with Christ in the name of Christ, and that it is only the name of Jesus Christ that we can be saved. And it is the word of God that leads us safely back to our heavenly parents, remembering that our lives must be built upon the rock of our Redeemer, the rock of heaven, uh, as, it was, as he is called in the book of Moses, that as, as we build our lives upon the foundation of Jesus Christ, not giving place for those that might come in and attempt to destroy that foundation, whether they be individuals or ideas uh, or practices that we either accept or indulge in, but rather kicking those out, giving no place for them, that our lives might be that our houses might be solid and remain built upon the rock of Jesus Christ is my prayer in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.